Amen. If you could turn in your Bibles with me to John 21. John chapter 21. I love John 21. I, uh, I chose to preach through it. Initially, I was going to preach this uh, the week after Easter. So it would make a lot more sense to preach it then. But here we are. Um, but I'm very thankful. It's God's Word. It's always relevant. It's always uh, perfect. So, so John 21. If, uh, if you could stand with me, we're going to... I'll read it. And we can read it together. Just reading the first uh, 14 verses. John 21, it says, After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias. And he revealed himself in this way. Simon, Peter, Thomas called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana and Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I am going fishing. And they said to him, We will go with you. They went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. And Jesus said to them, Children, do you have any fish? They answered him, No. He said to them, Cast the net on the right side of the boat, and you will find some. So they cast it, and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, It is the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work and threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far off from land, but about a hundred yards off. And when they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it and bread. Jesus said to them, Bring some of the fish that you have just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore, full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, Come and have breakfast. Now none of the disciples dared ask him, Who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them, and so with the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. Amen. You could be seated. Before you fall asleep or uh, freeze in your seat, I'm going to give you the main point. The risen Christ is faithful, he is sovereign and in control, he provides, and he is building his church. The risen Christ is faithful, he's in control, sovereign, he provides, he is building his church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. This fishing story is unique uh, to the Gospel of John. We don't read it in Matthew, Mark, or Luke. Not only has John written uh, these stories as an eyewitness, 
But John is also revealing these stories to us as disciples. These are important ministry truths that Jesus taught them. We read in actually uh, in John 21, verse 24, at the end of the chapter, John speaking of himself, John the disciple, not John the Baptist, just a little clarification there. He said, this is the disciple who is bearing witness about these things and who has written these things, and we know his testimony is true. Basically, John was there. He saw it with his own eyes. He took some notes, and most importantly, he's telling the truth. We can trust him. We can trust this word. And what's the truth about? Well, the truth about Jesus revealed. In verse 1, it says, Jesus revealed himself again. Another way to say it is Jesus manifested himself. Basically, Jesus is showing up. There's 40 days between the time Jesus raised, was raised from the dead and his ascension in Acts chapter 1. And within that 40 days, he was appearing at specific, specific times and in specific places. Revealed again in the Gospel of John, Jesus revealed himself on the first day of his resurrection to Mary Magdalene and then the disciples. A week later, he appeared again to the disciples, and that's when he let uh, doubting Thomas touch his hands and touch his side. Now, here we are in John 21. This is the third time. And who is he being revealed to? He's being revealed to the disciples. I think it would be fun if he went and revealed himself to Pilate or to the soldiers that put the nails in his hands. But he's concerned about the disciples. He's revealing himself to them. The 12 disciples are the 12 guys whom he called to follow him. They lived with him. They traveled with him. They ate with him. They did ministry with him for three years. And where are they? They're at the, the Sea of Tiberias. This is also known as the Sea of Galilee or Lake Gennesaret. It's 150 kilometers north of Jerusalem. It's about a three to five day journey, depending upon if you've got a bike or not. But this is important. The disciples are where they've been told to be. In Matthew 28, verse 10, the risen Jesus tells the women at the tomb, do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. So the disciples are where they are supposed to be. But when we read verse 2, uh, notice whose name is listed first. Simon Peter. Simon Peter, then Thomas, Nathaniel, 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 I should say that properly, of Cana and Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, that's James and John, and two other disciples, we don't know who they are. My guess is one of them's Andrew. This is their hometown, kind of home area where they're from. And we know seven of the 11 disciples are there, but the Simon Peter's name is listed first. Really, Simon Peter is the uh, main character in our story today. I love Simon Peter. He's the quarterback of the group of disciples, so to speak. He's their de facto leader. Peter, of course, is a simple fisherman who is called by Jesus to follow him, and he left everything and followed Jesus Christ. He was a part of an inner three group of disciples. He spent three years with Jesus, of course, very close to him. And Peter had some amazing moments. Peter is the one who got out of the boat and walked on water. 
Peter was the first of the disciples to confess that Jesus Christ was the Messiah. But Peter, of course, as we know, Peter had also had some pretty terrible moments. Actually, here in John 21, uh, this is not long after he had just had, I would uh, say it this way, uh, he had probably one of the most terrible moments in discipleship history when he denied the Lord Jesus Christ three times. What made it worst, what made it worse was in John 13, uh, we hear uh, Jesus telling uh, the story to the disciples that he is going to be going away. Where I'm going, you cannot come. And, and Peter says, hey, Jesus, look up here. I will lay down my life for you. Jesus is like, thank you. In Luke 22, 33, Peter says the same thing. Lord, I am ready to go with you to prison and to death. Really, Peter? Jesus knew better. And he said to Peter, he said, hey, even tonight, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. If you don't mind, if you could turn with me to Luke 22. I'm just going to read the story so we can get the context of John 21, I think, a little bit better. Luke 22, starting in verse 54. It says, Then they, and they is the, the chief priests, officers, and elders, seized him, of course, being Jesus. And they led him away, bringing him to the high priest's house. And Peter was following at a distance. And when they had kindled the fire in the middle of the courtyard and sat down together, Peter sat down among them. Then a servant girl, seeing him as he sat in the light and looked closely at him, said, This man was also with him. But he denied it, saying, Woman, I do not know him. And a little later, someone else saw him and said, You also are one of them. But Peter said, Man, I am not. And after an interval of about an hour, still another insisted, saying, Certainly this man was with him, for he too is a Galilean. But Peter said, Man, I do not know what you were talking about. And immediately, while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed. And pay attention to this. And the Lord turned and looked at Peter. And Peter remembered the saying of the Lord and how he had said to him, Before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. Ouch. <laughs> Peter is devastated. Of course, we know the story. Peter had boasted of his superior courage, his superior devotion. And here he is, he failed. Not only did he fail, he failed the Lord. He failed his friend. And the look, that look that Peter got from Jesus, I... I doubt it was a look of anger or disgust. Probably even worse, it was probably a look of compassion. The, I'm not mad, I'm just disappointed. Have you ever heard that? Hurts more. The wound of Peter's failure is still fresh here in John 21, if you could turn back there. Now keep in mind, all the disciples failed, really. They all left Jesus, they all scattered. But the details we have in the Gospels regarding Peter's denial are instructive. I love Peter's story. It's one of the reasons I cho chose to pre preach through this. I very much resonate with his failure. I think we all do. 
I read a great book last week. I was on holidays. read a great book called Live Not By Lies. And I thought this was important. He talked about the difference between an admirer of Jesus and a follower of Jesus. Um, listen to this. Rod Dreher is the author. He says, admirers, admirers love being associated with Jesus, but when trouble comes, they either turn on him or in some way try to put distance between themselves and the Lord. The admirer wants the comfort and advantage that comes with being a Christian, but when times change and Jesus becomes a scandal, or worse, the admirer folds. The 12 disciples uh, loved the association with Jesus. They admired him. They liked uh, the miracles and the bold teaching. They liked the bread, the fish, and the wine. They liked the fame and the power from being around Jesus. They liked the insider benefits until it was no longer a benefit, uh, but they missed it. They needed, and we need, to understand there is a cost to following Jesus Christ. The cost is your life. You are to take up your cross and follow him. Jesus told us we need to lose our life to find it. All the disciples failed. But, good news, good news, uh, Jesus is not done with them. He's not done with us. So back to John 21, verse 3. If you're taking uh, notes, uh, the first uh, kind of point or note I want to make is uh, leadership matters. Where are you leading? So verse 3, I'll just read it here. It says, Simon Peter said to them, I am going fishing. And they said to him, we will go with you. I am going fishing, he just declares. Now, I've been chewing on this passage for a while. And uh, I read quite a few commentaries, and really there's no consensus view of Peter's declaration to go fishing being that it was sinful or wrong. Uh, a lot of the commentaries said this would just be a natural thing for Peter to do uh, when he's at the Sea of Galilee or Lake Gennesaret or Sea of Tiberias. But I have a slightly different opinion. So a little bit off the grid here, but I believe Peter's decision to go fishing here is fishy. Uh, I believe it was wrong. I believe it was sinful. I've got five reasons. Notice the name Simon before the name Peter. Simon is Peter's name before he met Jesus. I think John is using uh, this purposefully, intentionally. The second reason, when Peter declares, I am going fishing, he's doing this alone. He's independent, no consultation. Uh, Proverbs 15.22 says, Without counsel, plans fail. But with many advisors, they succeed. The third reason, Jesus told the disciples to go to Galilee and that he would meet them there. They are to be waiting upon the Lord. By Peter declaring that he was leaving to go fishing alone, what if Jesus showed up while he was out? Like, if Jesus told you or I to go to the dome and wait for him, if I just kind of declared, hey, I'm going to go play 18 holes, like what if I missed Jesus coming? It would be, uh, I'd be on pins and needles waiting here for him. The fourth reason, this is important, uh, kind of the best of all my reasons, I would say. 
the type of fishing Peter is doing, I, I would kind of break it down. There's two different types of fishing. One is fishing for lunch. You take a rod, you cast a hook, you're fishing for a fish. In the Bible, you could fish for tax, apparently. I uh, don't know if that's still happening. Thanks for the, the laugh. Uh, but the type of fi fishing Peter's about to do is uh, commercial fishing. In uh, that time, they would go out at night. They would lay nets in the water. The fish can't see the nets at night. And they would cast these nets, and then they would haul them back in. It was a big job. They were looking to catch a lot of fish, and then the next morning, they would sell the fish. And what Peter's going to do here is not fishing with a rod and casting a hook. He is commercial fishing. He is going back to his old life. He's going back to his old job. That's important. When he declares, I am going fishing, I think he's saying, hey, I, I got to go get a job. I got to get back to work. Now look at uh, the end of verse 3. It says, they went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. This is the fifth reason I believe Peter's decision to go fishing was wrong. Uh, they caught nothing. And keep in mind, these are professional fishermen, and they caught nothing. So why is Peter fishing? Maybe it's the money. Maybe he feels his failure was too great, and he just needed to go back to something familiar. John doesn't write down the details of Peter's motives, but we do know the other disciples followed him, they went with him, they got into the boat, they cast their nets, and they all caught nothing. And the question I have is, where are you leading people? Are you leading people to wait on the Lord? Some people would say, oh, I'm not a leader. Well, keep in mind, eh? people are watching you. It matters what you do. If you're part of the body of Christ, it matters to me, it matters to all of us. So they went out to the boat, and that night they caught nothing. If you could keep your thumb in John 21 and turn back to John 15. John 15 and verse 4. Jesus is speaking here. He says, Abide in me, and I in you, as the branch that cannot bear fruit by itself, unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you, unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me, and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Apart from Jesus Christ, you can do nothing. Do you believe this? We need to abide in Christ to bear fruit. Your time spent with Jesus in sincere prayer, devotion, worship of the Lord will mean more in eternity than all the work, effort, study, and success you could have on your own and in the flesh. We need to get that. No abiding, no fruit. No waiting upon the Lord, no fruit. Waiting on the Lord, seeking Him, praying, worshiping, fellowshipping, serving others in the name of Jesus equals spiritual fruit for the, for the Lord, heavenly reward, eternal reward. 
we should be motivated by that. The disciples got out in the boat, professional fishermen, they went out all night, they're capable, I put fish catcher people, and they caught nothing. Doing life in the flesh equals no fruit. You need to get that. But, again, good news, back to John 21, verse 4, uh, just, just as day was breaking, Jesus, the risen Jesus, stood on the shore. So here comes Jesus to these fishing, fishless failures. I find this loving and kind. It's encouraging because, um, spoiler alert, I'm a failure too. We've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone uh, to his own way, Isaiah 53 says. We all fail. But God shows his love for us, and yet, and while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That's Romans 5.8. Even in our failure, Jesus Christ shows up. Jesus never fails. He is faithful when we are not. And verse 4 says, Yet the disciples did not know it was Jesus. They didn't know it was Jesus, probably because it's still dark or early morning. He's over 100 yards away. From here to that freshy sign is roughly 60 yards. I've walked it out. He also might be concealing his identity like he did on the road to Emmaus. We, we can only know if it's Jesus if he reveals it to us. So here we go. He's about to do that. Jesus, in verse 5... He says to them, children, do you have any fish? The term children here is not actually a term of endearment. It's kind of almost like a mocking term. It, 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 they answered him, uh, no. We have nothing, basically. And he said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. So they cast it and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. They have fished all night, casting a net, dragging it in. They would be tired. They would be hungry. I'm sure they're frustrated. Like, why did the disciples listen to this stranger on the shore? Uh, but there's something about the word of Christ, isn't there? The disciples listened. I think they heard the power and the surety in the voice. It was so clear. Do this and you will find some. I love that. Jesus knows where the fish are. Jesus Christ is in control of everything. Jesus Christ is sovereign. Here's some sound advice for me and for you. When Jesus tells you what to do, we do it. Jesus says to love your neighbor. Are we doing that? Jesus says to forgive others. Let's do that. Jesus says to do to others what you'd want them to do to you. We should do that. Jesus says to give to the poor. He says to pray. He says to fast. He says, don't worry. Are we listening? Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. Do as the disciples did here. And listen. They listened and did what Jesus told them to do. And make a note of this. We're to do ministry we're to do church in the way that Jesus tells us to do ministry. Uh, we're not trying to reinvent the wheel here. We're not trying to follow the next fad or leadership technique. We're trying to follow the Lord. 
In Matthew 28, of course, our mission statement, we're, we're to go and make disciples. That's what we're all about. Jesus often used fishing or casting a net as a tool, as a parable, allegory, metaphor, to describe uh, the kingdom of God or kingdom work. When Jesus says, cast the net, the allegory here, or metaphor, is to preach the gospel, to preach the good news of the kingdom. I always say the gospel is uh, an easy way to remember it. It's A, B, C. Admit you are a sinner in need of a savior. B, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And C, confess the Lord Jesus Christ to one another. A, B, C. It's that simple. So when Jesus says to cast the net, think, preach the gospel. So they cast the net and they did what Jesus told them to do. And of course, look at the results. Back down in verse uh, 6, it says, So they cast it, and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. Jesus speaks, the disciples listen, it equals miracle results. I keep doing math equations. Jesus speaks plus the disciples listening equals miracle results. They were out there on their own all night. They caught nothing. They get more accomplished in one cast with Jesus than a whole night on their own. Uh, and who put the fish in their net? Now, you could argue that the fish, the fish just chose at that point to swim in there. They all, as a school, which I know is uh, multiple fish, not fishes, uh, went into the net. They could have chosen to be there. But I, I believe also, we could also say very clearly that it's the sovereign Lord of the universe directed the fish at that point to go into the net and get caught. God is in control of the fish. God is in control of everything. When we preach the gospel, God is in control of the results. Acts 13, 48 says, um, and when the Gentiles heard this, being the gospel and the good news of Jesus Christ being for both Jews and Gentiles, they began rejoicing and glorifying God that the word, at the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. Romans 8.28 says, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for the good. For those who are called according to his purpose. Ephesians 1.3-5, I love this. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons, through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. Keep this in mind. Jesus is in control of all things. God is sovereign. Again, we cast the net. We are to preach the gospel clearly, fully, with words and actions, shining a light for him. And those around us will respond. I love how Wayne Grudem puts it in Systematic Theology. When you fish with Jesus, you are guaranteed to catch fish. Are you fishing? Are you sharing your testimony? Are you looking to shine a light in your home, in your community, in your workplace, wherever? And the disciples' response, if you go down to verse 7, it says, That disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, It is the Lord. Amen. This is awesome. 
Just a note here, the disciple whom Jesus loved is John, the writer of the gospel. That's how he refers to himself. By the way, I too am a disciple that Jesus loved. We could all write that if we wanted to. But John did this out of, I think, humility. Or maybe it drove Peter crazy, I'm not sure. John's response, it is the Lord. They see the miracle catch of fish and there's no doubt what's going on to them. They have seen this before. In Luke 5, when they were originally called to ministry, uh, we have a very similar story. Early in Jesus' ministry, he's preaching and teaching on the shores of Lake Galilee. And he jumps on the boat to teach the crowd. And the, the boat happens to be Peter's boat. In Luke 5, verse 4, it says that when he, being Jesus, had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into deep, into the deep, and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, we told all night and took nothing. Maybe these guys aren't great fishermen. But Peter here says, but at your word, I will let down the nets. And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish and their nets were breaking. Sounds familiar? But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees saying, depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish. So here we are a few years later. And it's a very similar story. Uh, no wonder John's response it is the Lord. They have been here before. Now imagine John said, wow, we're such great fishermen. <laughs> or imagine John said, whoa, what a coincidence. We are so lucky. I do that sometimes. Let me ask you this. Who are you giving glory to? Are you constantly giving yourself credit? Don't do that. Are you forgetting who gives you life and breath and everything? Are you secretly thinking uh, God is like a genie? It's amazing how many people I talk to uh, who believe in karma. Uh, no, don't do that. We should always understand God is sovereign. He is in control. Um, I've heard it said, I like this. You can either believe everything is a miracle or nothing is a miracle. The follower of Jesus Christ should be eyes wide open, looking for, expecting, and most importantly, acknowledging a God who is alive, gracious, and sovereign, in control. Every good and perfect gift comes from the Lord, James 1. Hopefully, when we look around and see what God is doing, we are quick to say, it is the Lord. And note this, in Luke 5, when Jesus first calls the disciples uh, to follow him, he was calling them to become fishers of men. In John 21, Jesus is recalling these disciples to the ministry he has chosen them for. Stop fishing for fish, we're fishing for men now. And Jesus is still going to establish the church through these simple fishermen. And what does Peter do when he hears it is the Lord? Back to verse seven. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work, and he threw himself into the sea. Fun fact, uh, when commercial fishermen fished, uh, they fished uh, often naked. Oh, that was interesting. Uh, they didn't like to do laundry, and so it protected their clothing. In Peter's first encounter with Jesus, he had a profound experience 
Uh, he saw the holiness of God and he saw, of course, his own sinfulness. He was uh, gripped with conviction and he says, depart from me for I'm a sinful man, O Lord. It's a very proper response. But here in John 21, Peter jumps in the water and makes his way to shore. There's two different responses. I believe Peter has learned some things about the grace of God from being with Jesus for three years. Peter knows that Jesus is loving and kind. Say it this way, Jesus hates sin, but he loves us sinners. We can always go to Jesus, whether we're running, walking, swimming. Let me ask you this. Do you struggle when you fail, thinking you need to distance yourself from God? For those of us who are believers in Jesus Christ, if you've been walking with the Lord for any length of time, hopefully you have learned what Peter has learned. Even in failure, we need to go to him. Understanding our sin, seeing our sin, it's a gift. It's the grace of God even seeing it. God, God is holy and righteous and perfect. We need Jesus to stand before him, but don't let your sin distance you from God. Rather, go to him. The, the idea that God does not want you around or your sin has somehow led you to an irredeemable place, it's bad theology. It's not true. It's a religious, I have to make myself right before God. Again, that's not true. You cannot make yourself righteous. Only faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ is the ticket. Jesus knows our sin. He knows our past sin. He knows our future sin. Therefore, when we fail, we don't have to stay down or stay away. Just the opposite. You could head to the beach. Jesus is not surprised or caught off guard by our sin. Uh, I love this. He's chosen us and he's praying for us. Jesus had predicted Jesus, Jesus, or, sorry, Jesus had predicted Peter's failure. But Peter didn't lose his faith because Jesus had prayed for him. In Luke 22, verses 31 and 32, we read Jesus telling Peter, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. Jesus chose Peter to follow him and Jesus prayed specifically that he wouldn't lose his faith even after his failure, after his denial. Jesus Christ is praying for you and for, for me right now. In John 17, Jesus says, I am praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. It's encouraging. Jesus is praying for you and I as believers. He's praying that despite what's going on around us and in us, that we wouldn't lose faith. Peter had left the fish and just went straight to hang out with Jesus. This is impulsive and bold. You bet. This is Peter. And why is... Uh, back down to verse 8. The other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far off from land, but about a hundred yards off. They couldn't get the fish into the boat. There were too many. Of course, it's a miracle catch of fish, a miracle catch. Uh, no need to keep fishing. Of course, they just wanted to come to shore as well to be with Jesus. And in verse 9, it says, When they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it and bread. 
An important note here, uh, the last time we read about a charcoal fire in the book of John is when Peter's in the garden denying Jesus. There's no doubt that when Peter saw this charcoal fire, it would have brought to mind the denials. I bet you every time he uh, heard a rooster crow at this point, he felt it deep in his heart. Jesus is not only reaffirming the disciples' call to ministry, but he's about to do, as we'll read later in John 21, we're not going to preach through that today, but Jesus is about to do some pretty significant restoration ministry, biblical counseling with Peter, equipping him for his future call to leadership within the church. I think it's so great that Jesus does this for the disciples. It's very loving and very caring. Just... This led me to ask a simple question, like, why, why did Jesus reveal himself the way he did over the 40 days after his resurrection? And I wrote down three things. The first, of course, most obvious, is uh, witnesses. Jesus revealed himself to the disciples to provide them a clear and powerful evidence of his resurrection. Uh, I wrote this down. Evidence so strong that even 2,000 years later, it cannot be discredited. The evidence of the empty tomb, the evidence of the immediate uh, testimony... We have written documents for mere months from the time of the resurrection. This wasn't a made-up story hundreds of years after the fact. And the fact that so many of the disciples were martyred, killed for proclaiming a risen Jesus. People do not lay their life down for a lie. They saw him alive. The second reason is uh, Jesus had further Bible training to do. Uh, I love the road to Emmaus story and how Jesus was teaching the disciples the word, showing them the Old Testament law, writings, and prophets, opening their minds to understand the scripture. And then the third reason is here in John 21, I believe, the restoration, repair, and recalling to the ministry for those first disciples. Jesus showing up, showing them their human efforts are useless, revealing himself, showing that he is sovereign and he is still providing for them. Back to verse 10, Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you have just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore, full of large fish, 153 of them, and although there were so many, the net was not torn. So 153 large fish, 153. What is the meaning of 153? I read... Uh, bunch of explanations uh, maybe 153 meant the number of languages at the world in the time maybe uh, it was the number of races and tribes in the world at the time maybe uh, it was the number of different kinds of fish in the sea therefore speaking to the variety of the people and races and tribes who would be saved through the preaching of the gospel we don't know if that's true or not I think the most straightforward and reliable reason for the number that John wrote down being 153 is that uh, John is merely providing a, an accurate and historical detail. John was a professional fisherman. He counted fish. I know this as a golfer. I keep score. They are very aware of the details and I think he just wrote it down. The fish that they caught most likely was tilapia. Um, I learned this, that a large tilapia can grow up to be uh, roughly six pounds. So 153 times six equals 918 pounds. A good night of fishing for a large crew 
would have been 900 to 1,100 pounds of fish. But that would take all night, roughly seven to eight uh, casts through the night. 153 large fish was no doubt a miracle catch. Uh, this was a full night's work in one cast. And looking at verse 12, it says, Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now, none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them and so with the fish. And this was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. Jesus had breakfast ready for them on the beach. Again, we have a loving and kind Savior who provides for us. But yes, they are having fish for breakfast, which I think is terrible. Where did Jesus get the bread and the fish? Uh, well, we know he's in control of all things. We, of course, the, we have the, we remember the feeding of the 5,000 people, or 5,000 men, probably 20,000 people. Uh, it, it happened in the exact same spot at the Sea of Tiberias. Jesus is God. He is creator of all things. He's able to provide at any time and in any way he wants. It's still early morning. Jesus' robe covered in cooking. Uh, I love this. That it was Jesus, but they didn't dare ask. Of course, they knew it was him. Who else could it be? But I think for the disciples, I love this. this there's probably a, a very real sense of reverence and awe in the presence of the resurrected Jesus. This is a terrible example, but when I was thinking of this, um, I remember one time in the early 2000s, I was working at a golf course, and I'm a big Toronto Raptors basketball fan, and uh, Vince Carter from the Toronto Raptors came to play at the golf course, and I was there to help him with his bag and help him with his green fee. I was so scared. I was so tongue-tied. I had a, a misplaced reverence. I would think if Jesus came into this room or if somebody came, we would all straighten up. We would all have, we would all be tongue-tied. We would all be in reverence and awe, which is a right response. He is awesome. He is holy. He is good. We are not. But thanks be to him. Jesus is fully man, eating fish on toast. But he's also fully God, resurrected from the dead, doing miracles. Jesus is risen. He's sovereign in control. He's still providing. In closing, I want to go back to verse 11. I think there's an important detail here that uh, I really love. It's the second half of verse 11. It says, although there were so many fish, the net was not torn. Again, this is a detail that a fisherman would write. This is a miracle within a miracle. A double miracle. Miracle I. Uh, this is pointing us to an important truth. Those whom Jesus saves, he saves forever. This speaks to our eternal security. And this is alluding to the truth that the gates of hell will not prevail against the church of Jesus Christ. In Matthew 16, Jesus asks his disciples, who do you say I am? 
And Simon Peter answered, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. The nets are not torn. Those whom God has saved will not be lost. The church will not break. Eternal security, what is it? John 10, 27 says, My sheep hear my voice. I know them. They follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. John 6, 38 says, For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on that last day. Those who are truly born again will be kept by God and will persevere as followers of Christ to the end of their lives. When John points out that the nets are not torn, he's alluding to the truth that God is going to keep us. He's chosen us and he'll be faithful to the end. What an awesome thing. We do the work that God calls us to do in the way that he tells us to do it. God gets the glory. It's not our glory, it's his glory. And he is able to do it, he will surely do it. And also, despite what's going on in the world, despite the attempts to cancel or silence or kill us Christ followers and to kill the church, this has been going on for roughly 2,000 years. Here we are. Jesus Christ is alive and we're here to worship him. Even today, I could find a hundred headlines how the Christian faith is old, archaic. It's not going to last. Unfortunately, uh, they're wrong. Many churches even now are bowing down or folding their biblical convictions based upon current cultural pressure. Uh, we do not need to do that. The nets are not torn. The church cannot be stopped. Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. And there's no other uh, name under heaven by which we can be saved. This truth has been around for 2,000 years. It's still true today, and it'll be true for all eternity. Uh, the nets are not torn. Be encouraged. Uh, the love of Jesus Christ, it never fails. It never gives up, and it never runs out. Even in our failure, just like with Peter who blew it, big time. But Jesus does not give up on us because he's called us. In closing, just keep this in mind. The nets were not torn. Uh, the church of Jesus Christ cannot be stopped. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you so much for this morning. Uh, we thank you for your church. We thank you that you are keeping us to the end. And Father, I pray that uh, we would walk in your ways, that we would honor you, that we would be uh, bold in our testimony and our witness. I pray that you would equip us and encourage us. You are so good. I pray this all in Jesus' name.
So in closing, we're going to sing the song, One Thing Remains. So if you would stand with me and we'll sing this together.